I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. It's not so in division to migrate out to the range. You're just unifying elsewhere. It's high noon for Tuesday, October 12th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or Join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com. And the merch site is cancelcotour.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 265th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth, that's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You wanted everyone to unite, and you knew you could make that happen. If only you got your way. Well, it turns out you were right. You just don't like the results because they're not uniting around your position. They're uniting around understanding that communism is awful. And hey, if you've realized that and you are sick of living in a country that you believe is divided along political lines, and it makes you feel sad. It makes you feel hopeless about the future of the country. What you need to understand is that what's happening right now is not a society-wide division. It is a society-wide unification. Okay? We're just not being told that. We're being told that this is all division. But the people who are telling us that this is division are the ones who are defining the terms of division and defining what it is we must unify around. But that's not how it works. Unification can only be accomplished in a free and open market of ideas. People will unify naturally because unification is something that can only happen authentically and sincerely. You can't pretend to unify, at least not in any long-term sense. It falls apart immediately, becomes obvious immediately. We can sense it and feel it. We can tell when someone is saying like, yeah, I support you, but you know that they don't fully support you. Or they say, yeah, I agree with you, but they don't fully agree with you, even if they want to. Because you can't force yourself to believe something you don't believe. And you unite, you unify around common beliefs. So people actually do have to share those beliefs. And no matter how hard they have tried to give our culture events and systems of belief, like the woke thing, 
to unify around, it continues to fail because no one authentically believes it unless you are really a straight up dyed in the wool commie. Everyone else is just repeating the slogans and that can be effective for them when trying to create the illusion of a majority, but it's not effective for genuine unity and unification. And so what is happening is that the country is actually unifying just in the opposite direction. The country is unified in its rejection of the woke thing, in its rejection of the lies about COVID. And more and more, it's becoming unified in the rejection of the Democrat Communist Party and the belief in a legitimate election in 2020. We are seeing the polls shift dramatically. Talked about that yesterday, the new Rasmussen poll. A third of Democrats now understand that Joe Biden and the Democrat Communist Party cheated. And when that view is fully accepted across society, people from all different backgrounds, points of view, when they all finally understand what has happened, and everyone will eventually understand that, you got to believe that. And I'm not saying you have to strictly believe that by faith. I'm saying there is more than enough evidence to understand that the country is going in that direction. It is all around us. That evidence, I mean. When that viewpoint is fully accepted, the people will be unified. And that's what the people in power right now, people who are supporting the global communist movement, that's what they are afraid of. They don't want anyone to know the truth. And if some people do know the truth, they don't want anyone else to know it. And then if everyone knows the truth, they want to make sure that people can't unify around the truth. And the way that they will do that is by trying to make the people telling the truth seem so toxic that it's actually worse to try to unify with the truth tellers because of what that says about you. That is the scam that they have pulled for a long, long time. And if you are sick of that, my suggestion is you leave all of the stupid and evil communist ideas behind and unify around the truth. You unify around the truth by migrating back to America and making your amends with all the people that you have bullied and shamed and censored and tried to get fired. Because as toxic as those people were made to you, that toxicity was an illusion as well. It was part of the lie. So just make your amends and migrate back to America where we will gladly receive you with open arms because our concern isn't with what happened before or what you thought or believed or said. At least I can speak for myself in that. And I'm pretty sure I can speak for the listeners of this show about that. And the people I interact with in one form or another want the same thing. So just migrate on back to America. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Tuesday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. 
Doesn't it feel good to be back, commies? Come back and unify around the truth with us so that the worst people on earth can be scared of you too. It kind of feels good to know that the people you thought had power over you and your family and friends and everything you did, they had power over the entire culture. They could ruin your life at any moment. And you were always at risk of having your life ruined just by saying the wrong thing. Now they're afraid of you. All you have to do is unify around the truth and those people are afraid of you. And one of the people who is the most afraid of you unifying around the truth is former CIA director and Barack Obama partner in treason and other crimes against America is John Brennan. Check this out. And John Brennan, very quickly, have you ever observed a society in this state of breakdown that fixes itself without some pretty serious action? And if so, what is that action? What can be done to reverse it? Well, I think in the past, sometimes there could be a galvanizing event where it's going to unite individuals against a common threat. Unfortunately, the threats we see right now are within our borders or it's among us. And I think it's really going to be difficult over the next several years. I think we're in for you know several years of real difficult political waters here that really are going to really test the mettle of our democracy. And uh, this is the time, I think, for Americans to try to push past all the disinformation that's out there and try to return to the principles of this great democracy, this republic of ours. The former director of the CIA, who is Barack Obama's partner in treason and various other crimes against the United States in service of ushering in the global communist agenda, that John Brennan, is suggesting an event that might galvanize the public against a common threat. He's calling for the country to take unified action to remove a threat, and then he immediately says the threat is actually within our borders. It is a domestic threat. It is the threat of domestic extremism and terrorism from the right wing, obviously. That is what he is saying. So the former CIA director, who is Barack Obama's partner in treason, other crimes against America, and the effort to usher in global communism, wants there to be a galvanizing event, because that is what has happened historically. There has been a galvanizing event, and the public has rallied around that galvanizing event to defeat the threat, as posed by John Brennan, obviously. And what historical events have been like that? Now, he's calling for this sort of event because we already had one of those events staged for us, and it didn't work the way John Brennan wanted it to. And, of course, I'm talking about the very violent insurrection on January 6th, which I spent a good deal of time on yesterday, Discussing Darren Beatty's piece in Revolver News as the reporting from Revolver has evolved over the last nine months, making it very clear that whatever happened on January 6th was 
certainly not an insurrection to overthrow the government. And though it may have been violent and may have involved Trump supporters in that violence, the violence and the invasion into the Capitol were largely driven by agents of the federal government, particularly the FBI and agents and informants that they have planted in the groups in this country that are often referred to as the extremist groups, as the white supremacist domestic terrorist groups. And of course, they always refer to the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, and the Oath Keepers. And 1-6 has largely been about the Oath Keepers. And then I was discussing the whistleblower report as reported poorly by Politico, but the letters always exist, the source material always exists, And let me just tangent for a second. In terms of source material, we've heard a lot in the last week about the Merrick Garland letter in response to the National School Board Association. And it seems like a lot of the coverage there has covered Garland's letter, but hasn't covered the original letter from the National School Boards Association. I covered that two Fridays ago. If you're not familiar with that situation, look back two Fridays. I guess that would have been... What, October 1st? I read the school board letter. They don't have any examples of extremist activity or violence or threats or harassment. They only have parents showing up to speak up for their children, and they need to reinterpret it in a way that demands federal action. That's the purpose. That's the goal. And it seems like almost everybody covering this thing did not bother to read that original letter because they still talk about it as if those threats were somehow real. But I only mention that as another example of how important it is to have a look at the actual source material rather than relying on the reporting. Because what the reporting often does, as Politico did yesterday, is pull out snippets that give you a sense of what the letter means. Okay? It says, and they're happy to cover the fact that this whistleblower thinks that the people in leadership of the Capitol Police failed in their job and they've, you know, snipped out these two little pieces to make you understand that they are reporting it accurately. But they're not reporting it accurately. Because when you read the letter, you understand, oh, it's way more serious and way worse than Politico is making it out to be. So with that in mind, you can understand that the very violent insurrection as a galvanizing event that the country will unify around to remove the threat, which in John Brennan's construction is the threat of domestic terrorism, a.k.a. right-wing extremism, a.k.a. white supremacy, a.k.a. Trump supporters. It is always going to be traced back and connected along a chain of false equivalencies. Okay, so one six, the event was not a very violent insurrection. All right. They are already portraying the event incorrectly. And then they want to say that that event that they are portraying incorrectly is domestic terrorism, which, of course, is not true because the event is not as they describe it. And then they say, well, domestic terrorism is 
right-wing extremism. So that is another false equivalency. We have seen domestic terrorism. We saw it all through the summer of 2020. But we weren't allowed to call it that because calling it that is racist, which is another false equivalency, of course. But so it goes from domestic terrorism to right-wing extremism, never on the left, never on the left. But if it's right-wing extremism, that means it must have a racial element because that's all right-wing means to these people. So then it's white supremacy. And then it's just MAGA and all Trump supporters. So with that very violent insurrection, all of a sudden you have reason to impugn the behavior and beliefs of every single Trump supporter in the country. And the idea is that the rest of the country, the good people, will all unite against Trump supporters because Trump supporters are the real threat. The threat that needs to actually be eliminated are the Trump supporters. That's what John Brennan believes. And you can hear him saying it. He says it all the time. So the galvanizing event, the example of how this works in history, failed. Now, does anyone possibly believe that John Brennan didn't know what was going to happen on January 6th and wasn't involved in its happening? I don't believe that. I don't imagine anyone could possibly believe that unless you simply don't know anything about what happened that day. And you don't know anything about who actually works with whom supporting one another's interests. When Nancy Pelosi and other leaders in Congress guide the Capitol Police to act in certain ways, they're not doing it in opposition to the Obama, Susan Rice, John Brennan contingent. They do it in coordination with these people. So what John Brennan is on MSNBC explaining to Joy Reid is his desire for an inciting event that will actually allow he and his allies to come down even harder on normal American citizens. They are taking what they often call a whole of government approach to oppressing the American people. And that is what they're doing. All right. It's not an accident. It is not a, a confluence of events. There aren't these different parts of the administration that are all making mistakes in the same direction. They are literally working toward the oppression of the American people in every facet of society. And what they want is the popular opinion to be backing them in that. And this is something I've talked about on the podcast a lot, okay? For these people to be fully successful in reaching their goal, they will eventually have to use extreme authoritarian power, actual state violence against the people. And I don't think we're going to get to that point. But the reason I bring it up is because they haven't shown a tendency to want to go that route to this point. And the reason you don't go that route is because you want the society to agree with you. 
right? So that everybody just does the job for you. Everybody just submits without going that extra distance. But now they've lost any semblance of public support. No one is going to unify around them to stop the threat posed by actual normal American people. Because there aren't enough evil communists in this country, no matter how much the media tries to tell us otherwise, no matter how much the culture tries to enforce it, no matter how much Facebook and Instagram and Google and Twitter try to censor us to create the illusion of a majority on the other side, that majority simply does not exist. And so what John Brennan wants historically actually does have a historical example that is worth looking at. And of course, if you haven't understood this to this point, the historical example is the Reichstag fire. And so I'm going to share an article with you. This is just from uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica. I figured that that was probably as uh, middle of the road as maybe we can get when we start talking about World War II history. It's always controversial somehow. Uh, Reichstag fire, burning of Reichstag Parliament building in Berlin on the night of February 27th, 1933, a key event in the establishment of the Nazi dictatorship and widely believed to have been contrived by the newly formed Nazi government itself to turn public opinion against its opponents and to assume emergency powers. Does that sound like January 6th? Does that sound like what John Brennan is talking about. I will submit to your judgment that it is exactly what John Brennan is talking about. Adolf Hitler had secured the chancellorship after the elections of November 1932, but his Nazi party had not won an overall majority. Therefore, he obtained cabinet consent to hold new elections on March 5th, 1933. Meanwhile, his propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, who was supposed to have devised the scheme whereby 10 agents led by Karl Ernst were to gain access to the Reichstag through a tunnel leading from the official residence of Hermann Goering, Reichstag president and Hitler's chief minister, who was then to conduct an official investigation which would fix responsibility for the fire on the communists. The supposed arsonist was a Dutchman, Marinus van der Lubbe, I think is how you say it. I don't know. Not Dutch. Who some have claimed was brought to the scene of the crime by Nazi agents. Others have contended that there was no proof of Nazi complicity in the crime, but that Hitler merely capitalized on van der Lubbe's independent act. The fire is the subject of continued debate and research. On February 28, 1933, the day after the fire, Hitler's dictatorship began with the enactment of a decree, quote, for the protection and of the people and the state, end quote, which dispensed with all constitutional protection of political, personal, and property rights. Though the ensuing elections still did not give the Nazis an outright majority, they were able to persuade the Reichstag to pass an enabling act on March 23rd, whereby all its legislative powers were transferred to the Reich cabinet by a vote of 444 to 94, so sanctioning the dictatorship. In the ensuing arson trial, van der Lubbe was convicted of treason. He was executed by guillotine in January 1934. Also tried in connection with the fire were Ernst Torgler, 
the chairman of the German Communist Party in the Reichstag and three Bulgarian communists, Simon Popov, Vasily Tanev and Georgi Dimitrov. Dimitrov in particular won international fame for his fearless and skilled defense against Nazi prosecutors. All four of the accused communists were acquitted because of lack of evidence. And I know I'm hardly the first to make the comparison between January 6th and the Reichstag fire. In fact, I don't think that this is the first time I've made the comparison either. But when you hear John Brennan say what you just heard him say, this is what you should think of and you should know without a shadow of a doubt who John Brennan actually is. Okay, he is calling for an event like this because January 6th did not get the job done as far as they are concerned. They wanted to use January 6th to somehow impeach Donald Trump, which is very strange for a president who is not currently in office. That is obviously the first time that's ever happened. And this was sold to the public on the idea that it would make it so that Trump could never run again if he was impeached and convicted, of course. From 1-6, they have held political prisoners in violation of their constitutional rights. They have refused to give exculpatory evidence to the defendants of these prisoners. And by that, obviously, I mean the fourth, uh, 14,000 hours of security footage from 1-6. They have covered up the Capitol Police's complicity in the events of that day. They have covered up the fact that they knew about certain elements of what would happen that day. They have still somehow not made any progress on catching the person who laid the pipe bombs outside the RNC and DNC. They erected fencing around the U.S. Capitol and brought in 25,000 National Guard troops to guard themselves, knowing full well they had just stolen an election and staged an insurrection. That is not in doubt, okay? When I say the things that I say, I understand that the things I say are not commonly understood. This is not the accepted story. I am telling you an unaccepted story that you are welcome to believe or disbelieve, and you can judge the truth or falsity of the story I'm telling you based on the evidence that underlies my claims and based on whether or not the things I say turn out to be true in reality. And I hope you are doing that, all right? I'm not the news and I'm certainly not the objective news, as if that exists, all right? I have my viewpoint. I express my viewpoint. I express the truth as I see it based on a set of facts I am happy to tell you about and discuss with you. If that set of facts leads you to a different conclusion, well, then you're free to trust your own discernment. But you should understand that I am not the only one who doesn't believe in the central narrative, in the accepted story. 
the people who are helping to create the accepted story and the people who are principals in the accepted story also do not believe the accepted story. Okay. Nancy Pelosi does not get her information about January 6th from CNN and MSNBC and Fox news. Okay. She knows what happened. She doesn't need the mainstream media. And if you need the mainstream media, I would suggest that you are uh, too attached to the central narrative and you are being misled in obvious ways. Okay. But when I am giving an unaccepted version of the story, I believe I have good reason to share that unaccepted version. And I know for a fact that even if my unaccepted version differs in some way from the unaccepted version that Nancy Pelosi possesses, she also at least agrees that the accepted version of the story clearly is not true because she helped formulate the accepted version of that story to benefit her. We need to stop pretending that these people actually believe the accepted story because I am on one side of the divide and they are on the other side of the divide. So it's not just me that doesn't believe Nancy Pelosi's version of events on January 6th. It is also Nancy Pelosi who doesn't believe Nancy Pelosi's version of what happened on January 6th. And that is a critical thing to understand in all of the events and issues we are discussing, okay? The idea that a politician is giving a certain spin or a certain point of view is pretty well accepted. They're going to have their biases. They're going to say their side of the story. But it's assumed that their side of the story is really representative of their beliefs about the story. And what I'm saying is that that part is not true. They are giving a side of the story, hoping you will believe it and your belief in what they tell you will benefit them. They don't have to actually believe it at all. I'm telling you about these events as I see them. Nancy Pelosi is telling you about these events in a way she wants you to believe but that does not mean that she's telling you about the events in the way she sees them. And that's the understanding I'm trying to hammer home. John Brennan is on MSNBC hoping that there is another event that he can misinterpret for the sake of his goals. And his goals are the oppression and demoralization of the American people as sovereign individuals existing within a sovereign state. And stepping outside what we know as American culture and the way we know the cable news to be, let's just think about how utterly dystopian and insane it is that a major television network that is ostensibly existing to inform the American people has among its paid contributors who are on all the time, a whole range of 
agents of our own intelligence community who are currently working against the interests of the American people. People from our FBI and CIA are employed by CNN and MSNBC and Fox to give us the CIA and the FBI's version of events so that we will react in a way that helps them achieve their goals, just like what I was talking about with Nancy Pelosi the other day. John Brennan's not out there saying this because he believes it. John Brennan is out there saying it because he wants us to believe it. And Frank Filiuzzi, the FBI guy who's always on MSNBC talking about how everyone is a domestic terrorist who was making up all that nonsense about the, uh, the Justice for J6 protest a few weeks ago where all the Fed bros showed up in their jean shorts and sunglasses. He's out there doing the same thing. He's trying to set narratives for events that he has a hand in initiating. He wants the story there before the event happens. And I'm going to uh, be talking to Patel Patriot, the author of Devolution, about uh, the Transition Integrity Project. We're going to do a, a look back on the Transition Integrity Project a year later. And so I've been going through all that. And it honestly is like a handbook, a playbook of all the things that the global communists are about to attempt in the election. So I think that that's going to be a really interesting conversation. And the Transition Integrity Project is like 22 pages long, but it's an extremely dense document. I've been going through and highlighting different parts that I'm going to talk to Patel about, and I might put that up on the info stream. It really it really is nuts. They are laying the groundwork for everything they were about to do around the election. And they do this so they can give this stuff to their media allies. And then the media allies can start presenting their predictions as if they were facts about the real world. It is like, like as if it had already happened. Like, oh, they're projecting that Donald Trump could do this if this happens. And then they do two days on the dangers of Donald Trump doing the thing that might happen five months from now. Something that only even exists as an idea because a bunch of Ivy League communists got together and pretended to study it. So I'm looking forward to that discussion. And also, tomorrow, midday, I am interviewing the one and only Cash Patel, uh, my friend Josh from the Wrong Opinion podcast, uh, linked us up. And so I'm going to get to talk to Cash Patel tomorrow. Super excited about that. I'm not sure if I'm going to put it out tomorrow or over the weekend. We will see. But if I am late or do not have a high noon to put up tomorrow, that will be why. But I have two really cool interviews coming up in the very, very near future. So let's switch gears. I want to talk about uh, some developments in election fraud news. This is from this morning in Just the News, uh, John Solomon's site. And this is John Solomon reporting. 
Wisconsin's election probe zeroes in on Democrat machine tactics and rule changes. Former Supreme Court justice signals focus on whether bureaucrats improperly hijacked election rules. And just before I get into this, Rachel Maddow was on television last night trying to use her Arizona audit playbook on this Wisconsin review and the other audits and reviews that are happening around the country. She decided that her best move was to make fun of the guy who is doing the review of the Wisconsin election by mocking him for being on YouTube and having a backdrop that he was filming in front of. Apparently, he doesn't have a very expensive cable news set, so the things he says are not reliable, whereas Rachel Maddow of the Russian collusion hoax, the P-tape, Trump's taxes, Trump being arrested by uh, Cy Vance and uh, Letitia James in New York. Oh, what other uh, conspiracy theories did Rachel Maddow spin to the public for five years? Oh, uh, impeachment hoax number one, impeachment hoax number two. Joe Biden is a very legitimate president. The January 6th event was a very violent insurrection. What else? Rachel Maddow of the very expensive cable news set is not impressed by the YouTube backdrop of former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Mike Gableman, who is doing the review of the Wisconsin election. That's what she's going with at this late date. Still pretending that the Arizona audit did not find any fraud. That is what she is selling to her audience. I'm going to suggest that maybe that's a losing strategy. Okay, let's go to the uh, Just the News article. Move over Arizona and hold on Pennsylvania. The next election integrity investigation to take center stage is occurring in Wisconsin where a former state Supreme Court justice empowered by the legislature to compel testimony and document production is gathering steam. Interviews with more than a dozen witnesses, officials, and lawyers who have interacted with retired Justice Mike Gableman and his staff suggest a strong focus on the role election bureaucracies played in changing the rules without legislative consent for how ballots were sent out, filled out, collected, and counted. Gableman's early investigative work as special counsel appointed by Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Voss is shining a spotlight, among other things, on the Wisconsin Election Commission, a statewide body created by GOP lawmakers after an earlier political rigging scandal in the state known as the John Doe investigations. The commission provides guidance and rules to the uh, 1,852 election clerks in the state on how to conduct voting. The commission in 2020 altered numerous state voting rules and procedures during the pandemic, often without seeking legislative permission. The changes range from allowing nursing home staff to help fill out resident ballots to giving permission to election clerks to fill out missing witness information required for absentee ballots. And I'm not exactly sure that they are referring to this, but I hope you all recall money was paid to people hired by Democrats to act as witnesses to ensure that the person signing the ballot was actually the person they claimed to be, right? 
So if I needed a witness to ensure that I had signed a document myself, that witness would be someone who knows me and would be like, yeah, that's Chris. Imagine I just went outside a local grocery store and found someone on their way into the grocery store and was like, hey, will you sign this paper for me attesting that I really am who I say I am? That was the level of scrutiny applied to these signatures. And I think that might be what they're referring to right here. I know that happened around the country. I'm not sure if that's exactly what they're talking about right here. These two changes alone affected thousands of ballots in a state in which Joe Biden was declared the winner with a narrow margin of just 20,600 votes. Perhaps even more consequential, the commission gave its blessing to an idea first conceived by election clerks in the blue counties of Dane and Milwaukee that voters could claim the normally rare status of indefinitely confined if they were too scared to go out during the COVID outbreak. The change allowed nearly 250,000 people to vote by absentee without complying with required voter ID rules. Okay, that is lawless. And Wisconsin's Supreme Court has already agreed that those ballots are invalid, which should have invalidated the state's Democratic electors prior to January 6th. But of course, when you have a commie governor and lawsuits flying all over the place, that didn't happen. That advice, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled after the election was unlawful. Only people who determine they have bona fide disabilities and infirmities are allowed to vote as indefinitely confined. And regulators had no right to declare the pandemic as such a condition. The justices ruled in the only major court decision after November 3rd to declare a large block of votes as potentially illegally cast. Gableman has the ability to determine why the rule change was made, whether it was influenced by politics and how many of the uh, 249,769 people who voted as indefinitely confined in 2020 didn't meet the legal criteria and simply voted that way on the flawed advice of regulators. As a point of comparison, Only about 72,000 voters in 2019 sought indefinitely confined status, leaving open the possibility that 150,000 or more voters in 2020 did not meet the proper standards, officials told Just the News. The potential total could be seven times the vote margin of Biden's victory. And truthfully, it could be higher than that. Just the News is not doing the best math in the world. All right. 250,000 minus 72,000 is 178,000, all right? That is nearly nine times the margin. Gableman has also signaled a focus on Wisconsin's big blue urban areas of Milwaukee, Madison, Racine, Kenosha, and Green Bay. Those five voting metropolises accepted more than $6 million in unprecedented donations to their election coordinators and judges in 2020 from the Center for Tech and Civic Life, a nonprofit funded almost exclusively by Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. The money, which also went to other major voting jurisdictions across America in 2020, has provoked enormous controversy, as Just the News has previously reported. First, the so-called Zuckerberg Bucks allowed a single billionaire to route his money outside the normal campaign finance system to election referees. Secondly, the donations came with strings attached that influenced how elections were carried out in the municipalities that got money. 
Documents previously obtained by Just the News, for instance, show officials in Green Bay and Brown County were required to conduct voter registration drives among specific minority communities that tend to vote Democrat. And former Brown County elections clerk Sandy Juno told Just the News professional elections experts like herself were sidelined in last November's election in favor of a liberal activist from the East Coast brought in with the Zuckerberg money. And this is who I was talking about yesterday, Michael Spitzer Rubenstein. We need to be really on top of this, because if this is how elections are going to go, we won't have election integrity, Juno said in a recent interview with Just the News. Officials and witnesses familiar with Gableman's document requests indicate he is also interested in investigating two events staged by election officials in the liberal bastion of Madison under the banner of democracy in the park. Gableman is investigating allegations that poll workers were instructed to go to the city's parks on September 26th and October 3rd and collect ballots from voters, even though Wisconsin does not allow for voting in locations outside approved precinct voting stations. All right. Again, those are just all obviously illegal votes. Those who have interacted with Gableman's team say he appears focused on substantive issues and committed to identifying how ballot collecting and counting was improperly changed in 2020 and how it can be improved or fixed by the legislature for future elections. Some of the earlier election audits and hearings have had a bit of folly to them, things that caused the media to take them less serious, said one person who has interacted with Gableman in recent weeks. Whereas Gableman, quote, seems to be serious about focusing on what matters and what can make Wisconsin elections better for the future. His work, however, has not escaped criticism. The state's Democrat attorney general and a key Republican state lawmaker expressed concerns Monday about the start of the investigation and its early subpoenas and whether it should continue. Why? Because they're scared. Obviously, that's why. There is no moral person who can still continue to take this tack against this stuff. It's dangerous to our democracy. Who do these people think they're kidding anymore? They are just obviously exposing themselves as part of the corruption. Gableman last week announced election officials who cooperate will have immunity from any prosecution, and that his goal was to restore voters' confidence in their electoral system after contentious 2016 and 2020 elections, in which one or the other party cried foul. This investigation has always been about identifying potential failures, improving election transparency, and ensuring our elections are run properly, and restoring public confidence in the election process, which should be inclusive, accountable, and transparent, he said. That's a goal that everyone should be able to support, regardless of politics. Yeah. Here are some of the questions witnesses and experts believe Gableman's investigation can answer. How many of the nearly 250,000 people who skipped voter ID requirements by declaring themselves indefinitely confined did so without meeting the legal criteria because of the bad advice given by election bureaucrats? Why did the WEC, the Wisconsin Elections Commission, fail to deactivate before the 2020 election? Tens of thousands of names from the voter rolls, which had been identified in 2019 as having inaccurate information, even though the state had taken such action in earlier elections. That is a great question. Why did the WEC successfully keep the Green Party candidate off the 2020 presidential ballot after allowing the party to appear in 2016? Supporters of Hillary Clinton claimed the Green Party siphoned some 33,000 votes from her tally in 2016. Ah, there we go. What a good answer. So if you keep the Green Party out, then the Democrats are the only choice for those liberal voters. Hmm. So suspicious why they would do that.
How much influence did Zuckerberg's money routed through the CTCL have on election administrators? And did its grant requirements benefit one party over another? Were events like Democracy in the Park an improper effort at vote gathering? And were any of those events coordinated with Democrats or the Biden campaign? No, they couldn't have been. Why did WEC instruct election clerks that they could fill out missing witness information from absentee ballots when the law requires ballots missing such information can be sent back to voters to be fixed? Also, how many ballots were corrected and in what cities? Was it lawful for WEC to allow clerks to send absentee ballots to all nursing home residents, whether they requested them or not, and to allow staff to help residents fill them out? And did any abuses occur? Man. How weird is that? Another issue with nursing homes involving the Democrat Communist Party leaders. So strange. Were there any abuses or mishandling of ballots delivered to unmonitored drop boxes during the 2020 election? And were there proper chains of custody? Some counties in Georgia have already been found to have problems with their drop boxes. Man, it's almost like Mark Zuckerberg put those there for a reason. Were any election machines allowed to be connected to the Internet or left with open ports that could have created security vulnerabilities, such as those recently flagged by the U.S. Election Assistance Commission? Those are all excellent questions, and I'm glad that there's actually somebody there trying to get to the bottom of those questions. It is strange to me that the mainstream media, exemplified, of course, by Rachel Maddow and repeated by everyone on MSNBC and CNN and ignored completely by Fox. It's strange that their goal is to make fun of the person trying to bring election integrity. Because unless you are for the theft of elections, you should want to know the answers to those questions. Why is it that some states, to benefit uniparty politics and global communism are allowed to break their election laws at will as much as they want. And no one is allowed to complain about it or look into it. That's where we are right now. And that's what we are being told by people like Rachel Maddow. Okay. So let's go to Georgia now. Because this is a really interesting dynamic. Uh, Secretary Raffensperger calls on Department of Justice to investigate allegations of Fulton County shredding applications. And this is from the Georgia Secretary of State's website, sos.ga.gov. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is calling on the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate Fulton County elections following recent allegations that Fulton County shredded 300 municipal election-related applications in violation of state law. The Georgia Secretary of State's office has already launched an investigation into the allegations. After 20 years of documented failure in Fulton County elections, Georgians are tired of waiting to see what the next embarrassing revelation will be, said Raffensperger. The Department of Justice needs to take a long look at what Fulton County is doing and how their leadership disenfranchises Fulton voters through incompetence and malfeasance. The voters of Georgia are sick of Fulton County's failures. Now, again, this is the Secretary of State's own website, okay? So this statement is presented in a way the Secretary of State wants it to look. Now, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, Brad Jordy Raffensperger in Georgia, is one of the most corrupt, most guilty election officials in the country. Like he's in a contest with people like uh, Katie Hobbs 
for number one. He is way up there. Let's pick this apart a little bit. After 20 years of documented failure in Fulton County elections, Georgians are tired of waiting to see what the next embarrassing revelation will be. All right. Now, Brad Raffensperger has spent the last year, the last 11 months plus, I should say, saying that the 2020 election was the most secure election in history. and Nothing could have been wrong. Right here, he is saying there have been 20 years of documented failure in Fulton County elections. And in fact, there is an overwhelming and obvious amount of documented failure in the 2020 election in Fulton County that Brad Raffensperger has the records to and of and did not share with the public at any time. And we went through that report back in June. I have posted that again today in the information stream. So if you want to go back and read that report, just look for Fulton County election irregularities in the info stream today. The article is from Just the News, and you can link to the report from that article. So Brad Raffensperger has known that there are 20 years worth of elections, irregularities, and problems in Fulton County. He also had the report detailing problems with this 2020 election, and he did not share it with the public. He denied that there were any problems. He called it the most secure election in history, as did uh, his Georgia allies, like that little twerp, Gabriel Sterling, um, the Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, and the governor, Brian Kemp, whose daughter's boyfriend was blown up as he drove his car down the freeway. And that is not a joke. The guy's name is Harrison Deal. You can look at pictures and find pictures of his car that exploded as he was driving on the freeway. And you can decide for yourself if it looks like there was just some problem with his car and it just magically exploded, or if it was actually attacked because Brian Kemp was about to call a special session. And then after that, he just denied that election fraud ever happened. Harrison Deal, D-E-A-L, Go look at the pictures. So Brad Jordy Raffensperger thinks the November 3rd, 2020 election was just perfect, even though he knows it wasn't, but that there were also 20 years history on election problems in Fulton County. And also now we have this thing from a municipal election about ballots being shredded. So he needs to get the Department of Justice to come in and look at it. The Department of Justice needs to come in to Georgia and get all the evidence on this heinous crime that pales in comparison to what he already knew about what happened in 2020. That is what Brad Raffensperger is doing. Let's read the rest of his uh, little statement here. New allegations have come to light that Fulton County was seen shredding. 300 applications related to Georgia's municipal elections. State law requires election officials to preserve elections documents related to primary or general elections for 24 months after the election. Raffensperger's office is investigating the allegations. After repeatedly calling for new leadership in Fulton's elections, Raffensperger is also participating in a review under Georgia's new election law that could lead to a replacement of the leadership in Fulton County's elections. Elections in Fulton County have been problematic for decades. As a result of election failures in 2020, 
Ravensburger was the first secretary of state to force Fulton County elections into a consent order requiring them to accept state-appointed monitor to oversee their elections processes. The monitor, Carter Jones, found no fraud, but significant mismanagement issues in Fulton County's elections processes. Jones described Fulton's election processes as badly managed, sloppy, and chaotic after spending several months working closely with Fulton County's elections. After repeatedly calling on the General Assembly to provide the authority to the Secretary of State's office to fix failing counties, SB202 has finally provided the means to do so. Beforehand, because counties ran elections, there were few avenues for accountability at the state level when counties repeatedly failed their voters. The state election board has only limited ability to help voters, such as those in Fulton County, who had been failed repeatedly by their county elections leadership. Okay, so what do we have here? We have recognition that there were problems in 2020, but that report does not claim that those problems had anything to do with fraud. So we recognize that people might have their complaints out there. Okay, everybody, we get it. You're complaining. You think something's wrong, but let us tell you something is just a little bit wrong, but it's not fraud. It's not fraud. Whatever you're thinking about the problems in Fulton County, It's not fraud. There is no way, no way that Donald Trump won in Georgia. In fact, he lost by about 11,800 votes, even though our problems count for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of votes all over the state, not just Fulton County. But you know what we're going to do to fix this problem? We're going to call Merrick Garland to send the Department of Justice down. The same Department of Justice who threatened Arizona's Senate not to do a canvas because that would constitute voter harassment and intimidation. And they would have to come down and really start putting putting the smack down on the Arizona Senate. Merrick Garland's Department of Justice and particularly Uh, Pamela Carlin, the one who appeared as a witness in Trump's first impeachment, that Pamela Carlin, the one who tried to make a joke about Baron Trump because apparently she thinks that's appropriate in in an impeachment hearing, a very, very real impeachment hearing, that Pamela Carlin, the one who sent the letter threatening consequences if the Arizona Senate Uh, enacted and had performed a canvas of the 2020 election, which would have exposed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of votes of voter fraud, illegal votes, votes that weren't from real humans. That Pamela Carlin, that Department of Justice, Brad Raffensperger is inviting them down to Georgia to fix this problem because some people shredded some voter applications for a municipal election. That's what the Department of Justice needs to come down and fix for Republican Brad Raffensperger. Merrick Garland is going to bring the Department of Justice down to fix Georgia's elections. And once they get there, well, what can you imagine they might do? Well, would they have cause to get all of the evidence relating to Fulton County's elections? Well, yeah, I guess that they probably would. Well, So what if, what if that evidence is needed in an audit or other review to ensure that 
the 2020 presidential election and that the the rest of the down ballot races weren't defrauded. What happens if there's one of those reviews? Well, I guess that it's too bad because the Department of Justice has that stuff. And so you're going to need to cooperate with them. And the truth is they're doing some pretty serious work right now, and it could take a really long time. So it's totally possible that you're not going to be able to get that evidence ever. But hey, I guess we should celebrate the fact that Brad Raffensperger is looking into it. Brad Raffensperger, the guy that has participated in those crimes and covered them up. Brad Raffensperger, who is in office as a Republican because he was one of the people who was selected by a PR company to run as a Republican, even though he is just a normal dyed-in-the-wool communist. Now, what else is wrong in Georgia besides everything? This is from uh, Uncovered D.C. from this morning. Fulton County paid Dominion $2 million to staff and run elections at a rate of $2,000 plus per person per day. A report resulting from an internal audit of Fulton County's shameful election management practices has received little attention from the media. As shocking as that may be, and despite the expectation that such a report would only be somewhat critical of itself, the findings have led to several damning revelations. Apart from the self-initiated analysis and audits we've, com- we've seen coming from Georgia this year, which only seem to confirm perfection. Such was the case with the forensic audit of the voting machines, which the Gateway Pundit exclusively reported was nothing but a sham. The Fulton County internal audit was different because the Secretary of State didn't control it. This review was prompted by problems such as budget overruns, un- unpaid past due invoices, and other signs of poor management. The findings reveal an election that was so financially mismanaged, it would have made Enron's accounting look good. One of the most unbelievable of these findings is almost $2 million in past due invoices from one company to staff the election. Fulton County election staff had potentially been exposed to someone with COVID, so they were all quarantined before and during the election. Some may find the timing convenient. Based on nothing more than a verbal agreement, Fulton County contracted Dominion to staff the election at a rate of $2,000 a day per person. And on election day, the rate went up to $5,000 a day per person, totaling uh, $1,965,260. Most things that cost $2,000 to $5,000 per day are illegal in most states. (laughs) That's pretty funny. From the audit report, we sampled invoice files for transactions that occurred during the scope of our audit and noted the department did not maintain records for professional services, including overtime, totaling $1,965,260. Management informed us that the verbal agreement between Fulton County and the vendor for these professional services was $450,000. However, Fulton was billed four times that amount. Subsequently, the department possessed no verifiable means, i.e. timesheets, of on-site support that could be used to validate the invoices submitted for payment. Nearly $2 million based on nothing more than a verbal agreement and a bill. An open records request was submitted, which yielded the three invoices for the Rockstar-priced voting machine talent. Not only did Dominion sell Georgia the voting machines for the entire state, but they also literally ran the election. The only safeguard between the receipt of the voting equipment and the election is the logic and accuracy test, which is required by state law. The LAT checks that the proper software is installed on the machines and matches that which is certified by the EAC. 
This is to make sure the software hasn't been tampered with. The test also consists of accuracy testing by running test ballots through the machine and comparing the results. After the LAT, the machines are then secured until Election Day. In response to the findings of the internal audit report, the state of Georgia made the following unforced disclosure. This is finding four, lack of supporting documentation. Amidst the November 2020 election, our department experienced a COVID-19 outbreak affecting 25 warehouse employees in less than one week. Our warehouse staff is vital to preparing, testing, securing, and delivering equipment for early voting and election day. In addition, warehouse staff prepares, packs, and delivers supplies to precincts for early voting and on election day. Within a week, we lost nearly 50% of our staff. The management staff was stricken with COVID-19. This required Fulton County to contract with Dominion Voting Systems to provide technicians to replace our staff in order to complete logic and accuracy testing, a legally mandated procedure, and to prepare supplies. We relied on Dominion Voting Systems to track their staff. It seems Georgia didn't have any logic themselves because Dominion was contracted to do the logic and accuracy testing too. Unacceptable and unbelievable. Besides overpaying Dominion, Fulton County had little to do with the November election, with two exceptions one of which was the late-night clandestine counting session of Ruby, Shea, and company. That's Ruby Freeman, uh, Wandria, Shea, Moss. And I think the guy's name was Ralph Jones, if I remember correctly. The other is the signature match process, which they staffed with Stacey Abrams' Happy Faces temps, as the Gateway Pundit reported earlier. With Happy Faces working, 100% early voting, ballot adjudication, absentee ballot processing, warehousing, Dropbox, signature verification, they are basically running our elections. Based upon the invoices, there seems to be substantial charges following the election that coincide with Georgia's state law required risk-limiting audit, which elections experts from both sides of the aisle agree was deficient. In fact, the inventor of the risk-limiting audit, Philip Stark, said Georgia's exercise was anything but a risk-limiting audit. In any case, a hand count or risk-limiting audit should only use paper ballots and be independent of the electronic voting machines and systems. Of all the states whose elections results are being questioned, Georgia is among the worst. On many aspects of Georgia's election shortcomings, both sides agree. Marilyn Marks and the Coalition for Good, Good Governance have been fighting an epic legal battle against the Secretary of State to get rid of the state's Dominion BMD voting machines because they do not produce an auditable paper record. Marks and CGG are responsible for the court declaring Georgia's previous voting system unconstitutional, the only such ruling in American history. Maryland is also credited for gaining court-ordered access to the ballot images from the November election. Those same ballot images are being used by Garland Favorito's group, Voter GA, who are scanning them for duplicates and other irregularities. Many have been found thus far and are being used in another lawsuit seeking access to the physical ballots, which is the only way to determine if the duplicates were physically reproduced and counted or not. No state has managed its elections with such reckless disregard for their sanctity by the wholesale outsourcing of nearly the entire process. What could go wrong? It's clear that not only does Georgia have election integrity problems, but leadership integrity problems as well. And yes, that is accurate. Now, again, Think about what the Georgia Secretary of State's office and the Secretary of State himself, Brad Jordy Raffensperger, are doing right now. What they are doing is trying to make sure that the cover-up is complete. This is complete and total obstruction. There is no other reason to call in the Department of Justice about what is a minor incident, relatively, 
rather than to simply stop obstructing and delaying and denying access to people who actually want to audit the vote. If the concern is fixing the elections in Fulton County and elsewhere in Georgia, if the concern is getting to the bottom of potentially criminal activity, just allow the audit because then we'll know. Then we'll know exactly what crimes occurred and we can figure out from there who is responsible for them. Instead, we have the feckless idiot Merrick Garland and his little cronies, potentially in the FBI, coming down to Georgia to take all of their evidence and make sure no one else can see it, which is exactly the intent. Because in a few weeks, that Garland Favorito case, they will very likely open up the opportunity for Favorito to have access to the rest of that. How do you get that to stop? Well, you're seeing it on display right now. Now, before we go, I want to just update a little bit about the Southwest issues. There has been some motion in that. And before anything else, I just want to go ahead and play their CEO today on CNBC. Uh, in favor of corporations imposing that kind of a mandate. I'm not in favor of that, never have been. Uh, but the executive order from President Biden mandates that all federal employees and then all federal contractors, which covers uh, all the major airlines, uh, have to have a mandate in a vaccine in place by December the 8th. So we're working through that. So Southwest CEO is blaming Joe Biden's executive order for him putting this vaccine mandate in place. And by the way, in that same interview, Southwest CEO is denying that these delays and people being out of work has anything to do with the vaccine mandate in the first place. That is just obviously false. And Southwest's pilots are coming to various reporters and talking about this stuff themselves. No one's denying that it's the vaccine mandates, except for the people at the top. So Biden doesn't have an executive order mandating vaccines. That's just not true. Biden came out and gave a press conference. He instructed OSHA to create a rule. OSHA has not created that rule yet. The CEO, I guess, is saying that he expects there to be a rule that they all have to vaccinate by December 8th. But what is he going to do? Over half his workforce is not going to vaccinate by December 8th or any other date. So the CEO is trying to save himself, I guess, in the eyes of his employees and in the eyes of the public. But he's being dishonest. He knows there's not an executive order. If he doesn't know that, then he's a terrible CEO, right? So he's either bad at his job or lying. If you're putting in a mandate that you don't have to put in and you don't support, then you're totally incompetent. If you're putting in a mandate that you don't support because you think you're being forced to, then you're weak. But the truth is that he knows he's not being forced to. So the claim that he doesn't support the mandate goes right out the window because he's choosing to put the mandate into place. So you can't say you don't support the mandate. Just say you do support the mandate under certain conditions. And those conditions are that the illegitimate communist administration pretending to run the country right now 
has tightened the screws on you and forced your hand because you already took money from the government to play this game. And you have since the beginning. The covid relief money and the subsidies given to so many huge corporations around the country for their response to covid has now been the price on their compliance. And they are all still complying. But this isn't going to work out that well for Gary Kelly because it doesn't sound at all like his employees are going to comply. This is from War Room this morning. Pilot Association president now just went on CNBC again to give his response. He says, the airline won't even sit down and talk to us. As you know, every pilot has to maintain, they have to maintain the pilot certificate and the medical certificate. And he said, we have to address natural immunities, antibodies, and alternative means of compliance. The power of this show, we had Pesova, was the power of the show, Pesova was on here yesterday, he called Southwest Airlines in management liars. And by the way, there should be an investigation immediately about the stock price. How management could come out when Pasovic and these guys, Tom Sauer, laid it out what these pilots are doing, right? And they sit there and deny it. The Kelly denies it and calls these guys liar real quickly. Sauer, read that uh, thing again. Oh, absolutely. Read it again. Absolutely. So this is coming from uh, during the previous segment. Uh, we I, I got a text from a Southwest Airlines pilot who's actively flying. If anyone thinks that this will stop with one COVID-19 vaccine or that it will stop with airline employees, they're dead wrong. This is about power and control. They're coming for everyone in this country. I personally think that if this airline employee mandate stands, then airline passengers will be next. We must hold the line and we must and we need every American's help and support. Get the freedoms that we give up today, uh, our freedoms our children will never know existed. May God save us and all and may God bless America. So when Gary Kelly tries to say that this has nothing to do with a vaccine mandate, it's pretty clear that he's lying. And to pretend that Joe Biden actually created an executive order forcing his hand, and that's the justification for this, that's just another lie. What he's referring to is an executive order mandating that federal employees take the vaccine. I'm going to read an analysis of this because the implication was that workers with federal contracts, federal contractors, this mandate would apply to them too. And Southwest has 2% of its business through the federal government. So they are intimating that they are somehow covered by that executive order. But that's also not true because that only applies to contracts started after the middle of November. This is like when the FDA approved of community. They didn't actually approve of the vaccine that people are taking. They're using the story of the approval of the other thing to create the equivalence which, by the way, the approval itself creates on their behalf. And then they are forcing people to get the Pfizer vaccine or any of the other ones, even though they don't have the same approval as community. What we have, as always, is just simple corruption and influence peddling. And the fake administration is obviously threatening all of these companies 
to comply. And it turns out, of course, that Gary Kelly is a good friend of the World Economic Forum. That's Klaus Schwab. That's Build Back Better. So if you want to know why Gary Kelly is doing what he's doing, that would be a great place to start. And last but not least, we have talked before about NBA players who are refusing to get vaccinated and the responses that their teams are having. I shared last week the story of Andrew Wiggins, who expressed that he was essentially forced and coerced into getting vaccinated. He knew he didn't want to, but he was afraid to lose his job and the enormous amount of money coming into him that would take care of his family for a generation or more. It's a lot of money, like $16 million a year. But he relented, he submitted, and he felt really, really bad about it. Basically said, I don't even own my own body anymore. And that, my friends, is very, very sad and awful. So Kyrie Irving on the Brooklyn Nets refused to get the vaccine. And initially, he was not going to be allowed to play his home games in New York, but they had a workaround so that he could still practice and then still go out and play on the road. Now, his team, the Brooklyn Nets, has decided that's not good enough, and their general manager released a statement this morning. Their general manager's name, by the way, is uh, Sean Marks. We should just call him Sean Marxist. Given the evolving nature of the situation and after thorough deliberation, we have decided Kyrie Irving will not play or practice with the team until he is eligible to be a full participant. That means until he is vaccinated. Kyrie has made a personal choice and we respect his individual right to choose. Currently, the choice restricts his ability to be a full-time member of the team, and we will not permit any member of our team to participate with part-time availability. It is imperative that we continue to build chemistry as a team and remain true to our long-established values of togetherness and sacrifice. And the implication there, by the way, is that those are values that Kyrie Irving somehow doesn't share. This statement is pathetic, man. Our championship goals for the season have not changed, and to achieve these goals, each member of our organization must pull in the same direction. We are excited for the start of the season and look forward to a successful campaign that will make the borough of Brooklyn proud. Okay, Sean Marxist. Brooklyn is not going to be proud because you are causing the team to be worse to force a superstar player to submit to becoming part of a medical experiment. That's not what makes Brooklyn people happy. Might make his kind of people happy. Might make the people in the luxury boxes at the stadium happy. But that's not what makes normal people happy. And he's almost definitely causing the team to be worse. And if he just stood his ground, nothing would have happened. In fact, the weak people running New York would have probably just gotten rid of the regulation. Kyrie Irving being forced to sit out over the vaccine is a big deal. No, the NBA and professional sports are not the most important things in our society by a long shot. But they do dominate conversations in certain circles. This will wake people up. 
And now Kyrie Irving is going to get all sorts of heat. People are going to be so mad at him. Oh, he's letting the team down. Nonsense. I hope that Kyrie Irving sticks up for himself because someone has to. And that statement that you just heard read on the war room makes it pretty clear. And I agree. This isn't where this ends. You start complying with stuff like this. It keeps going. This is why we should have never complied in the first place with the lockdowns, with the masks, with any of it. None of it works. All of it was a lie. None of it has ever been about trying to keep the country healthy ever. Not even a little bit. Isn't it amazing that in that statement, he didn't mention the health of the team at all, at all, because it's got nothing to do with that. It only has to do with compliance. They will continue to punish everyone until everyone submits. They will stop trying to punish anyone when everyone stands up and refuses to comply. Everyone needs to take back their own personal power or it will ultimately be stripped from you anyway. All right. These people don't stop. The purpose of what they're doing is to never stop. They want full power, full control, and will not stop until they have it. And by the way, full power and full control also come with them eliminating countless lives off this planet entirely. That's not a conspiracy theory. It's what they say they want. This is the society that they want. It's time that we simply believe them and show them once and for all that we actually have unified. We are united. We are united against them. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform is great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that 
at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'mYourModerator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range. It's hell!